What should entrepreneurs practice and what can they learn from a writer? Stay tuned and find out. Okay, here's the question. How are we dark horses? You know, the ones everyone is betting against, the ones they don't expect to win, place, or even show on the track, and they'll even laugh on us when we talk about trying. How do we show the world our greatness and triumph? Well, that's the question, and this podcast will give you the answers. This is The Dark Horse Entrepreneur. My name is... Tracy Brinkman. What is up? What is up? What is up, my dark horse friends and family? Welcome back to your weekly dose of shark toothed wisdom learning. I'm your dark horse host, Tracy Brinkman. And you, well, that, my friend, is infinitely more important. You are a driven entrepreneur or business owner, or perhaps hoping to be one very soon. Either way, you're here because you're ready to start, restart, kickstart, and just start leveling up with some great marketing, personal, or business tips and results in order to build that beautiful business of yours into the empire it absolutely deserves to be. And that's why I'm bringing you another big episode today, because today Carl Gottlieb, the man behind that famous shark movie Jaws, shares about making your own luck, dealing with what is, do what you like, a sense of community, and practice to work in progress to repertoire, plus so much more. Plus, I want to give you a little sneak peek into next week's interview episode guest, who's an attorney and former pro soccer ball player. But today, my guest, Carl Gottlieb, he was a member of the committee, which is an early improvisational comedy theater group in San Francisco. Actually started back in Greenwich Village back in the mid-60s, if I remember correctly. Uh, Remember, Larry Hankin was also a member of that crew. He was a, a previous guest on our show Now, you may not know him from these days, but I'm willing to bet you've heard of a couple of the other projects he's been involved in, right? There was this little movie called Jaws that he wrote the screenplay for, as well as Jaws 2 and Caveman that starred Ringo Starr and Dennis Quaid. There was The Jerk starring Steve Martin and Dr. Detroit starring Dan Aykroyd and Howard Hessman. If you go look at his resume, it's as long as my arm. Actually, it's probably a little bit longer. There are so many amazing things that we can learn from this gentleman and we are about to. So, as per usual, the Dark Horse Corrals are chock full of personal business and marketing G-O-L-D spilling from every corner of the Dark Horse Entrepreneur HQ. So let's get to the starting gates and go. Oh, welcome to the show. And the first thing I like folks to do is just, just kind of tell their story. And you have a really cool story to tell. And that, that allows us just, I just want to have a conversation. I want this to be about you, not what I want to ask about you, but we'll just, uh, you know, chit chat and see where it goes. Okay, well, I have a little bit of a problem with that. Uh Uh-oh, what's up? Well, you know, I was brought up that it is uh, kind of, you know, impolite to talk about yourself. Uh, (laughs) I don't don't do it, you know, normally. Uh uh, And, you know, in podcasts, if if, uh, no disrespect, but all of you guys tend to ask the same questions. Like, what was it like when, you know, some part of my history or some some something that you're interested in, like the fish movie, for example. That's sure. That's the most obvious one. Um, but what's it like, too, is not a very helpful question. It's like it is. I mean, you know, it's, uh, it's frustrating because, you know, I lived it and, you know, we 
You want me to relive it? You want me to talk about it 45 years later? You want me to talk about high school, which was 1952, you know, more, more than a half century ago? Um, I'm, I'm left to my own devices. I got nothing to say. You know, I, 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 I don't, um, if I meet strangers, like, you know, you're a stranger. Let's say, if, sure. if, this, if this wasn't online and we were seated, seated next to each other on a bus or on a park bench and we got to chatting, I would not talk about myself uh, voluntarily. Uh, I would respond to questions, you know, sure. until they got too personal or too intimate or if I thought they were just inappropriate. I would say, no, you know, I don't want to talk about that. I do. Mm-hmm. So, um, I mean, I do have, you know, like, and which is one of the reasons the only way you see celebrities in media these days is if they are pushing a project or advancing their career in some way. The, uh, the era of guests that are just good talkers, that died 40 years ago with, uh, with Steve Allen and Johnny Carson, uh, who used to have... have Really good guests who were just good guests. They they just gave good conversation. I don't you. Well, you you might not be too young to remember Alexander King. Yes. Dodie Goodman. Yeah, absolutely. So those guests who were char or, um, Hermione Gingold who were charming just for being themselves. I mean, mm-hmm. I like like to think I'm charming just being myself. Um, but they had real raconteurs on the air in those days. And now it's just, you know, talking about my project. I don't have a project, uh, except okay. I do. There is one thing I can talk about. Okay. I'll start that. I'll start off with that. Okay. Sounds good. In, uh, in the spring of 2022, I will be going up to Seattle to see a main stage production at the Seattle Repertory Theater of Bruce, a musical comedy, 20 singers and dancers based on my book, The Jaws Log. Okay. Nice. They're making a Broadway musical out of this book, not Jaws, the Jaws log. And it's very weird because I've been to a run through and I've been to some auditions and, you know, uh, preview tests in New York City mm-hmm. with the Oso Lyricist team. And it's really odd to see an actor portraying Carl Gottlieb, for example. <laughs> right. Another actor portraying Steven Spielberg and actors, you know, Playing everybody in the book, all all the Joe Alves, Zanuck and Brown, Peter Benchley, Spielberg, of course. You know everybody. Everybody is represented, and that's that's been a great exercise. It was put on hold for a year, of course, because of COVID. Mm-hmm. Uh, last year at this time, I had just come back from New York City from seeing the preview uh, two years ago, 2019. Then I had my heart attack. Then I was, you know, in rehab for months and months, and then I got better. And just as I got used to living alone without caregivers and assistants hovering over me, yeah. here came COVID. Oh my gosh. Now I've lived by myself for you know 40 years, so it's no it's not a big deal. I'm comfortable living by myself. And mercifully, my pensions are sufficient to pay for having things delivered and sure. you know, out. You know, if you get a meal from uh, delivered from Postmates or Grubhub, it's literally twice or three times as expensive as what it would be if you just walked over to the restaurant. But I can afford it and I do it. I send for it. It comes and it's all hot and fresh. <laughs> and uh, that's uh, that, but that's my life. So uh, I, I live pretty simply. I live by myself. Mm-hmm. I had a cat for a long time, but she died. Aww. Now I'm, I'm alone in my house, which is just fine. 
in these adventures with uh, interested persons like yourself. Uh, those those uh, keep me occupied. I do one, sometimes two a week. And uh, if I'm lucky, they don't ask the same questions twice. <laughs> well, hopefully I don't ask all the questions like, uh, what was it like when? But you've had a pretty amazing career. You know, I mean, we're going all the way back to, I mean, even before the fish movie, right? You were, you were rooting around down there with the Smothers Brothers and uh, Bob Newhart. Uh, if I remember, uh, even Flip Wilson, who growing up for me was one of those comedians that never failed to make me laugh. So you've, You've been associated with many of the names that we've come to know and love across. Well, I say me, uh, we with uh, us with the long gray beards, right? Who've been around long enough to know them. Uh, I mean, how cool is that just to have, I don't know, participated in what I've heard called, and I will, I believe in it, the golden age of television, right? Back then. I I, I was lucky, but I, I, in, in some ways, um, I'm not going to say, I'm not going to be you know, hyper confident and say, well, I made my luck. I did not make my luck. I was, I got very lucky. Mm -hmm. It all goes back to when I, I graduated college in January. I had transferred from City College in New York to Syracuse University, and I had lost a few credits, you know, in the transfer. So I had to go for an extra semester to make up nine credits to qualify for my bachelor's degree. Mm -hmm. I did. I went back and I had a very relaxing semester with, you know, just two drama classes and a phys ed. You know, that was that was my nine points. But I, when I graduated, it was January 1960. Um, it was cold. There was snow drifts 12 feet high in Syracuse. <laughs> the wind used to blow in from, uh, well, if, like if you're in Wisconsin, you know what happens. Wind blows in off from the Arctic Circle across the Great Lakes. Oh, yeah. Moisture that just dumps it on Buffalo and Syracuse and Utica and Erie, Pennsylvania. Mm -hmm. anyway, so I was, you know, slogging across the campus, realizing for the first time in 16 years, I didn't have a term paper to write. I had, you know, I had, I had no obligations beyond, you know, getting to a meal and home again. And my father, who was a civil servant, had counseled me as much as fathers counsel their sons, said, do what you like. Says, uh, I didn't. He was a, you know, product of the depression. Mm -hmm. Took whatever jobs he could get and wound up in civil service because that was safe. It had a good pension. He was a civil engineer and he worked as an engineer for the city of New York in a very good civil service job. He passed every civil service exam, you know, he advanced as high up the ladder as you could advance by taking tests. After that, he would have had to be politically appointed. He was active at his union, the State County Municipal Employees Union. He bred in me a strong sense of unionism and cooperative effort. Uh, but he said, but he was adamant about doing what I like. So I made a little promise to myself on that snowy winter evening in Syracuse. I said, okay, I'm going to go to New York, you know, go back to where I live and grew up. And I'm going to only do what I like. I'm going to be in theater or show business. I'm not going to be a cab driver. I'm not going to be an office temp. I'm not going to be a merchant marine. I'm not going to do any of those cool jobs that you read about on the dust jackets of novels. You know, when they say this, this writer was a longshoreman and a stevedore and a you know, cowboy and a merchant marine. sold 
the sold graveyard plots, you know, all those right. I said, all gonna, those great filler topics. <laughs> yeah, I'm not going to do those jobs. I'm only going to work in show business. And then when I got to New York, I was lucky enough to uh, get a job running the lights and sound for a Greenwich Village coffee house uh, called The Bitter End on Bleecker Street. Uh, and though actually it was called The Cock and Bull, it later Fred Weintraub bought it and turned it into The Bitter End. But I was there as I was the MC and the host and I did the lights and sound. And I got paid like 25 bucks a week and meals. And that was fine for me. And, you know, and then in those days, you could get an apartment in Greenwich Village for $60 a month, which I did. And I shared it with my college, one of my college pals, Larry Hankett, who's still in the business, very popular. Um, so Larry and I had this, you know, $60, $70 a month apartment on Carmine Street in the village. And I, I knew I was probably going to get drafted pretty soon because my college draft exemption had expired. Mm. This was before the lottery. This was just, you know, your local draft board decided if you would go or not. Right. And I was way cannon fodder. So I just, you know, kind of, I took whatever showbiz jobs came along. And then, uh, and then I did get drafted and I went for two years into the military and I got out and I did summer stock theater. And then I came, was hired to be the first stage manager at the committee in San Francisco where I went and became part of an improvisational theater troupe, albeit as a techie, you know, as the, the stage manager. But one thing led to another, and uh, I went to New York. I worked for a Broadway producer, and I went back to the committee as an actor in 1966, and my life changed. It was, uh, you know, we were local stars. We did well. In 68, the show came to Los Angeles. I came with it. Smothers Brothers saw me. Robert Altman saw me and hired me for MASH. And, you know, just one job led to another. I was friends. I was, you know, I, I had met Steve Martin in the old days on the Smothers Brothers show. Steve and I became acquainted, became good friends. So, you know, I, I made all the friends, uh, that I carried into my adult life in those years. And, you know, what we hired each other or we, there was a greater sense of community in those days. Mm-hmm. I mean, there was another, there was a, a round faced actor named Oliver Clark. And we always wound up at auditions together because we were the same physical type. And in those days, you thought nothing of telling a fellow actor, hey, did you read for this? I went up for it. You know, we're the same type. You should, if you haven't been up for it yet, you should call your agent and see if you can get, get into for an interview. And we would give each other hints. I mean, nowadays, that's unheard of. It's cutthroat competition. Yeah. You don't tell another actor about it. But uh, in those days, you did. And there was a great sense of community to it. And also there was a great sense of uh, the improvisational community. You know, all the improv actors in America knew each other because there were only three or four theaters. There was the committee, there was the Second City, there was a company in New York called The Premise, and um, let's see, committee, oh, Second City Committee, uh, The Premise, and I think maybe Upright Citizens Brigade in Boston, but that was it. That was all the improvisational actors there were. And uh, we all knew each other. We all, you know, sometimes we'd, you'd move from one company to another. Second City actor would come and join the committee. A committee actor would go play in, uh, was a committee stage manager who started the Groundlings, for example, in mm-hmm. LA. So, you know, there was a great sense of community, which I enjoyed, and which led to me being, you know, pretty constant, constantly employed. So, you know, that was my life. That, uh, that, that was some cool stuff that I know, uh, I actually was lucky enough to have Larry Hankin on this show as well. And yeah, yeah. he was sharing quite a bit about, uh, the, uh, the impact of, uh, of Greenwich Village. 
and uh, and the community and you said it too the the community feel of that area let alone uh, moving that uh, that whole community feel into uh, into the improv communities uh, that went out west with the uh, with second city and and uh, the committee etc and so he had big things to say about the impact that those had on his career path as well so yeah. clearly it was a big thing back then to be a part of that community that offered a step up for a number of folks oh no it was great i mean uh, the the uh, like i said larry was my roommate in greenwich village and in, in san francisco uh, one of the reasons I got into the committee was uh, Larry had preceded me and was in the first company of the committee when it opened. And he said, you'd love this. And then the committee needed a stage manager. And that's what I did. So I, I went out to the committee as a stage manager in 1963. I was their first stage manager. Nice. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So how do you, how, what, what kind of prompted you to shift from being behind the scenes in the tech and in, in front of the, uh, the audience as uh, as an improv into writing, which I know you've done a lot of writing. Some of us know the movies that uh, you've done and watched them and been scared by them or laughed at them. But what kind of prompted that shift? You're now listening to the Dark Horse Entrepreneur Podcast. Interesting. I was uh, I was always a writer. I mean, I was when I was in high school. I won the medal in my high school for English composition, words were always my thing. I could not, mm. I can't remember a time when I didn't read, for example. I mean, when I was four years old, I was reading, and I read voluminously and indiscriminately. And I wrote, you know, I just would write letters. I, you know, I, I, I could write, I, I was a writer. Mm -hmm. um, and when I became an actor in the committee, I realized I, I was, uh, I kind of liked it. I drifted into it. When I was stage manager at the committee, I kind of played myself. I played the part of the stage manager sure. and, appear, and appeared a couple of times on stage in various sketches and stuff. And I was a presence. And I enjoyed it because you know, I got laughs, and I always liked getting laughs. I had done summer theater. I had done college theater. And so I, I, I had acted a fair amount uh, just coming up as an adjunct to writing. I was, I was a dual major in college in journalism and theater arts. Ah, okay. So I was writing and doing theater. So um, you know, adult life kind of continued my college career of writing and, and acting or writing and performing or writing and being a tech, you know, hanging lights and doing sound and stage managing. And, you know, it just literally one thing led to another. Somebody would say, hey, you're a funny guy. Would you like to write this show or would you like to be in something? So I, I was... I kind of was always writing as well as acting. Sure. And of course, improvising is kind of writing on your feet. It's the same creative process. Yeah. So it's kind uh, of sped up a little bit, right? <laughs> yeah. I mean, you know, the stakes are higher, but the immediacy of it is incredibly gratifying. If you watch a really good improvisation, you cannot tell first time from rehearsed and, you know, rehearsed and practiced. It, it appears that smooth. Nice. I, I know I've seen a, a a number of, I'll call them improvs, but I've always been suspect that they practiced their skill, which they do, right? You do practice. Yeah, yeah. We, you, we, you, you work with, we don't call it practice. We call it workshop. Okay. Or, rehear, or rehearsal. Or one of us used to call it play practice. <laughs> <laughs> but but uh, um, you, you oh, what was my point? Um, 
I, I think where I mean where I was going with it was even something like improv, right? Where you're you're responding to someone there, whether it be some random thought that comes from the audience or the the person that's across from you on the stage. Oh, it's still it's still a skill you have to practice. Yeah, I, I know what I'm going to say. Okay. But I, I used to insist, and, and I was a stickler for this. Whenever we introduce the scene to the audience, we introduce it as either of three things. And now an improvisation based on your suggestion, something, whatever it is, mm-hmm. which was a genuine improvisation. That was a, usually the first time it was performed. Uh, a scene from our repertoire, which you know might have begun as an improvisation a year earlier, and it become something we did in the show every night because it worked right uh, so it, it became part of part of the repertoire it was just as uh, rehearsed just as constant as something that was written and rehearsed and performed it was sure. you know, so it was improvisation seen from our repertoire or a work in progress which means we had improvised it fairly recently the improvisation had showed promise but it wasn't ready to put in front of an audience on a regular basis yet mm-hmm. so we would still be working on it and trying it in front of audiences working all the variables, you know, to see what would make. And then if it worked in front of a number of audiences, it would transition into the repertoire, become part of our nightly shows. Nice. And, you know, we'd go on, take suggestions for other improvs. Nice. It's uh, basically it, uh, everything ends up being a work in pro. Well, maybe not, because if it's a work in progress, it might not, uh, it might not make it into the repertoire because it's like, yeah. well, people aren't really jiving with this. Sometimes you know you can't find an ending for it, or mm. sometimes it's it tends to go on too long. There's all all kinds of reasons why a piece of material fails, and you can't predict because comedy, uh, you know, ultimately the audience is the judge. If they laugh, it's funny. If they don't laugh, it's not funny. And if it's if you're really in love with the material and you do it two or three, four times in front of an audience, just out of out of sheer will, God damn it, we're going to make this work. Uh, and after the third time, nobody laughs. You go, well, fuck it, it's not funny. It's not funny. Let's not waste our time or the audience's time on it. We're going we're to set this one on the shelf. Yeah, we're just jerking off here, so let's move on. Right, no doubt. And I think that's an important process for um, a lot of the folks that listen to this show are, are, are budding entrepreneurs or already entrepreneurs. And I think sometimes they just get so wrapped up in what they think, in your case, this is funny, goddammit. I'm going to keep pushing it on the audience and the audience is going, dude, uh, this stopped being funny 15 minutes ago. Just just, yeah. just cut it. Yeah. Just cut your losses. Put it up on the shelf and go on to the next item, right? I think it was Neil Simon talking about comedy writing who said sometimes you got to kill your darlings yes you gotta you gotta kill the darlings i like that one i have to remember that one <laughs> so i get here's a here's a here's a question that just kind of popped up in my head what do you think one of the greatest lessons you learned through that improvisation period of your of your life was oh um i very much learned the the importance of listening to someone mm-hmm. I mean, I'm, I am a better listener than most. Uh, you know, I kind of hear everything that somebody's saying. Mm-hmm. Uh, I learned not to overthink or read into somebody's comments what they mean. Just listen to what they say. Deal. The most important instruction uh, that I got, and I recommend this as a motto tattooed on the inside of your eyelids, deal with what is. Now, it's not always easy to figure out what is. I mean, right. the reality may be 
shaded or, or affected by uh, what psychologists call set and setting. Right. Know? But uh, nonetheless, if you're open to your experience and you try to uh, take it in without interpretation, just as an existential, this is what is, it makes life a lot easier because uh, you're not trying to invent something new. You're not trying to impose your will on someone else. You're not trying to alter reality. You know, if it's like the scene behind me, for example, this is a street in Barcelona. Mm -hmm. And that's an apartment house designed by Gaudi. It's a fabulous apartment house. Uh, and, you know, very organic, very art nouveau shapes and everything. Mm -hmm. uh, and as, as a matter of fact, here's, a, here's the roof. Oh, wow. Yeah, yeah, this is the roof. And this is uh, the Sagrada, the famous church that he designed. It's anyway, beautiful. My goodness. Yeah, it's, it's quite spectacular. So, so, uh, uh, but that, it, that's what is, you know, that, that, that place is not going to change. And there's traffic on the street, so you can get killed in the traffic. So, you know, you be careful when you cross the street. Uh, but beyond that, you just appreciate the building for what it is. It's existential. Deal with what is. I like it. Deal with what is. Deal with what is. All right. I, I want to be mindful of your time because I definitely appreciate you coming on and hanging out. Now, you said you didn't have a project going on, but this uh, this play that's going to be coming up in Seattle, you said spring of 2022? May, May 24th, 1920, uh, 2022. May, May 24th, 2022, right? Se Seattle, Washington, the Seattle Repertory Theater. All right. Based on the Jaws log, not yep. the movie Jaws, ladies and gentlemen, the Jaws log. And it's called Bruce. Bruce. All right. And uh, it should be great fun. And, you know, I'm, I'm going to be up there for it. Obviously, some of my friends are flying in for it. It's uh, it's exciting stuff. That's going to be cool. I, I'm interested to see that one play out. I'm going to have to go check that one out when uh, when things open up a little bit more. Right. Yeah. So ho hopefully we'll keep that. Uh, we'll keep that on our prayers as well. Anything else we want to tell our audience about you got going on or things maybe percolating in the hopper behind the scenes coming up soon or coming up down the road? No, I, like I say, I, I'm not very big on self-promotion anymore sure. because if I hype something or get involved with something, then I have to do it. You know, then I got to <laughs> get, get off my comfortable couch and go somewhere, you know, and, and uh, I kind of like the way I'm living now, which is uh, without much fuss and very quietly. And I'm a little frailer than I was two years ago sure. because I've had open heart surgery and a bunch of, a bunch of other health related issues. But I'm, you know, as you can see, I'm, I'm walking and talking and not suffering anything terribly debilitating except the occasional bout of incontinence. And I, <laughs> well, I think all of us got to deal with that every once in a while, yeah. but you, my friend have been around a while. So I think you're rocking it and you're doing great to, it's been an awesome conversation. I appreciate you coming on and hanging out with us for a bit. And I'm should gonna make ever, should <laughs> you ever hear should you ever hear about prostate transplants? I'm interested. <laughs> <laughs> okay, let me make myself a little note here. Prostate transplants. Reach out to Carl. Got it. Got it down. <laughs> Carl, you've been a hoot, man. I definitely enjoyed hanging out and chatting with you. Thank you. If you're an old jazz head, you'll enjoy this background behind me here. Yeah, I was checking that out. Yes, this is 52nd Street between 6th and 7th Avenue, which at one time was the jazz capital of the world. Mm. So on this club, and this here's uh, Errol Gardner, J.C. Hurd, Oscar Pettiford at the Three Deuces. Yeah. B.S. Pulley, famous comedian who played in 
was the original Ju- uh, Julie in, in Guys and Dolls. Okay, yeah. Big Julie from Chicago. That was B.S. Pulley. Uh, Club Samoa, then back, see, back here, up on here, you see Lois DeFee. She was a famous stripper of the era who married a little person. She married a midget. Wow. As a, as a publicity stunt in the 40s. And is that back when they, they had the big feathers? Yeah. fans that they were using to do all that's so cool on, on this side of the street is jimmy ryan's which was a notorious dixieland bar and the, the onyx and tony's and leon and eddie's these are all famous famous jazz love harry hipster was a, car- a comedian by that name before ronnie graham kind of appropriated wow. it and the cars you can see all the cars yeah some there. beautiful cars yeah, yeah and, and things were so different you know it's funny as i was uh I was lucky enough to have a, a good chat with uh, Diane Steinberg, and she was sharing about uh, was it Beale Street in Nashville, and uh, all the influential Beale Streets in Memphis. Memphis, thank you very much. Uh, Beale Street in Memphis, and all the influential music that rose up during her mother's time, and when she was a youngster, uh, you know, all the people that came out of there, and eventually we know Elvis, and you know, a number of others have, have come through there as well, and you know, I'm sure there were similar pictures uh, peppering her walls as well. Carl, thank you so much. Okay, thank you very much. I appreciate it. All right, Enjoy. thanks so much, Carl. Enjoyed the session. All right, there you have it, my Dark Horse friends and family. Carl Gottlieb dropping some comedic as well as shark tooth wisdom bombs on us. What thoughts resonated with you? God, there were so many, right? Uh, Let me give you a couple that kind of kicked me in the skull. Thought number one, make your own luck. Carl mentioned briefly the impact of luck and the making of your own luck in your life. Look, Can things happen that give you an opportunity that others in your space don't get? Well, duh, of course they can. But here's the thing. If you're not prepared and ready and paying attention, you'll probably be unable or unwilling or just plain unaware and probably just fuck off those opportunities when they are presented. Now, I have been quote unquote lucky. And to this day, I still believe in luck. But let me stop you right there and tell you that in no uncertain terms do I attribute luck to my success. It didn't come from luck, right? You see, what we do every single day, time in, time out, lays the groundwork for that so-called luck. When we achieve our goals, and I mean those little tiny goals, as well as those big, hairy, audacious goals, right? The actions that you and I take and the habits that you and I create as a result of striving toward and achieving each and every one of those goals elevates us past the current version of ourselves. From that elevated position, luck can spring eternal. I want to chat a bit more about this in episode 318. If success is not luck, then what is it? Thought number two, do what you like. Very wise advice that Carl received from his father in his earlier years. Who, by the way, did not choose to do what he liked. Now, he proved to be very successful in the career path that he chose, as Carl mentioned. But luckily, 
Carl did, and I am very sure that this had a very positive impact on not only the path he chose, but the level of success he was able to maintain or attain and maintain on that path. Look, there are going to be so many times when you, as a person, let alone an entrepreneur, are going to be faced with tough times tough decisions and tough clients, right? Hell, you'll probably get to that point where you just want to throw your hands up and say, screw this, I give up, right? Shoot, you're probably going to feel that way many, many times if we're going to be honest with one another, right? But if you choose to do what you like, it will be far easier to push through those tough times. Now, I do want to give you a bit more just in case you are at one of those moments right this very minute. I mean, think about it. You're deep in it and you're about to throw those hands up in the air and say, screw it, I'm done. So you're going to want to listen to episode 319, seven tips for when entrepreneurs feel like giving up. Thought number three, sense of community. Carl mentioned that he made many of his friends that he carried well into his adult years during his time in the committee uh, in New York, which later moved to the West Coast, and he, and he with it. Now, if I think back across my many years, I have a handful. And when I say handful, I mean I could quite probably count all of them on one hand. But I have a handful of friends that I made and have carried well into my adult life and into this very day, all made from a sense of community. We're all part of the neighborhood, not some Facebook page or Twitter group or Instahood or TikTok gathering. No, we were a tight knit little connection, uh, excuse me, of tight knit little collection of different people that all believed in one another. As I grew up, I kind of struggled to find that same level of connection with others. I would stumble across someone and again, it really wasn't, oh, I don't know, till about a decade ago that I found someone that I was able to build that level of connection with. Maybe it was a little less than a decade, right? Maybe seven years. Now, perhaps you feel like that too, perhaps not. But here's the thing. I think our tech-infused lives have pulled so many uh, away from building those close connections, right? I would urge you to set your phone down to get up from the television, to put down the gaming controller and get out there and get involved with your community so that you can build those connections and reinstate your sense of community. I've been doing this over the past year or so, even with all the crazy pandemic nonsense is going on. We've been getting out there and getting more involved in our community. And I've been able to find a couple of new connections that I treasure right now. So plus, here's the other thing. I'm willing to bet that if you did this, much like myself, you'd find huge opportunities for you to add value through the very, to the very community, through the services and the involvements that, uh, that you get into. So again, set down the phone, step away from the television. It's okay. It'll be there. It'll be DVR'd or TiVo'd or God, I just dated myself saying TiVo. 
Set down your phone. Step away from the television. Put down the gaming controller and get out there and get involved. And thought number four, practice to work in progress to repertoire. Carl shared how while in the improv arena, they were always presenting a scene in one of three ways, right? One was practice, which enabled them to build a new scene out of random ideas thrown out by the audience, thus enabling them to practice and hone their improv skills. Two, it was presented as a work in progress. Now, this one is much like it sounds like. It was something they had been working on and building upon, once again, to hone their skills and their performances. And three, it was something that was in their repertoire, a scene that they had finely tuned to near perfection that they wanted to present to their audience for their entertainment. I think the lesson here is that everything in your life and in your business is just that. It's either practice or work in progress, or it's part of your repertoire. Your job is to practice some of your weaker skills enough to move them into the work in progress category. Then work your work, work in progress areas enough that you're able to move them into your repertoire and keep your repertoire areas practiced and well, relevant enough to hold their importance on your life and your business. Oh, and if you were to find that they have lost their importance or their relevance, please, please, please take a moment and figure out why. Because my friends, if you don't, I am willing to bet that you will be continually presenting them to an audience that will walk away thinking, dude, that was so three years ago. But if you took the time to figure out why, you can then just and hone and fine-tune them again to make sure that you're delivering the highest possible value to yourself, to your life, and your business. All right, my Dark Horse friends and family, what inspiring ideas, tips, or thoughts resonated with you, huh? Whatever they were, take some time, like right now, and write them down. Then, get out there and take some time today and put them into action. Yeah, that's right, get out there, run your race, get your results, and then let me hear about them. I honestly mean this. I want you to email me at Tracy at DarkHorseSchooling.com. Excuse me, DarkHorseSchooling.com. Share the tips or ideas that you came away with, how you put them into action, and what results you got from them. Probably bring you on the show and let you share your story with the likes of Carl Gottlieb. What's up with that, right? All right, and next week, Right, our next week's interview episode guest is going to be Harry Abraham. Now, Harry is an attorney and former pro soccer ball player. He's also the co-founder of BizWings. Now, BizWings is a business automation company for small businesses. They eliminate repetitive tasks to save time and increase productivity for you to close more deals and better serve your existing clients. Now. I know you want to keep getting all these valuable tips and inspirational stories from the guests I'm lucky enough to be able to bring onto the show. So please go on down there, hit that subscribe button. While you're there, go ahead and leave us a five-star rating. Drop us some kind words in the reviews. Ask questions, leave comments, uh, constructive criticism, whatever you want to do in there. And of course, finally, do not keep all this entrepreneurial G-O-L-D all to yourself. Share the podcast with other entrepreneurs and business owners that you know will get value from it. And with that, I'm going to leave you as I always do. Think successfully. 
and take action. Thank you for listening to the Dark Horse Entrepreneur Podcast. Thanks for tuning in. Check us out at www.darkhorseschooling.com. All right. My name is Tracy Brinkman.